Another objection that crops up a thousand times a day in the culture wars is, you can't legislate morality. The non-Christian doesn't even believe the Bible. So how can we talk about building a society based upon the law of God? We asked our panel, can we legislate morality? Well, there is a great deal more in the Bible about political truth than most people recognize. Much of it is in the Old Testament. But since the modern evangelical ethos tends to oppose the abiding authority of the Old Testament, they don't recognize the political implications and the political standards that the Old Testament sets forth. I realize the Bible does not speak specifically to every conceivable political issue, but it speaks to many more issues directly or by implication than most modern evangelicals and uh, the modern church in general would permit. We do certainly believe in the ethical precepts of the law, but it is not ours, our responsibility to do away even with the case laws. In other words, we may not understand how to apply all of the law. We could bring up specific laws about uh, sowing a field with diverse seeds, for example, and may not understand the historical background that would help us to understand why the law was set forth in the first place. But the point is we have to take all of the law of God seriously. And therefore, it's not ours to play picky-choosy and say, I like this law, for instance, against homosexuality or stealing, but I don't like this law governing marital intercourse, for example. We have to abide by the law of God when it is established, even if we don't understand it well. We need to work hard on the task of exegesis, understanding the law of God. But when we do come to an understanding, we need to abide by it. It is not our responsibility to select certain portions of the law of God that we like. I realize that in late 20th century America, we have certain tender sensibilities about uh, how abortionists or homosexuals should be treated. We live according to a rights theory of life rather than a responsibility view of life. So there are some of God's laws that do, especially on first reading, seem harsh and difficult. The question we have to ask is, are we going to conform our ideas and our practice to the law of God? Are we, or are, on the other hand, we going to permit the modern culture to dictate to us our ethical values, to use the modern expression? No, even though there are some difficulties in the law of God and difficulties in enforcing the law of God, if we're going to say we believe the Bible, if we're going to say we believe in sola scriptura, then we have to say that the law of God must prevail in society, even in the parts that we consider difficult. When people say that they uh, believe this silliness about uh, legislating morality, saying you can't legislate morality, uh, they're ignoring the very nature of legislation itself. Legislation is merely the codification in law of someone's morality. It's simply saying that this is right and this is wrong. If you violate these standards, you'll get in trouble. If you adhere to these standards, you'll be safe. So the whole thing is a logical fallacy. You can't legislate morality. Well, then, if you can't legislate morality, you can't legislate. And the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Whether we believe the Ten Commandments or not, somehow or another in our culture we have adhered to this absolute that taking someone else's property is wrong. 
Now, we didn't come up with that idea ourselves. It's drawn out of the biblical implications of uh, foundational standards that were uh, the beginnings of the, uh, the, the bulwark of our culture. The same thing is true when we come to issues of bodily harm. Thou shalt not kill. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not something that the Supreme Court or the framers of the Constitution came up with. Now, there are those who say that there are no moral absolutes. Uh, there are those uh, humanists who believe that, that man is the center of all things, the measure of all things, and that man can decide all things. But that's simply uh, not a possible philosophy. It's not a workable philosophy. There always must be some absolute uh, to which we adhere. We do it, whether we do it consciously or not, in modern America, e even with all of the assaults of the humanists. And, um, and when uh, we try and stray from those standards, it's inevitable that we get into trouble. It's one of the reasons why there's so much confusion and disarray in our society today. Nobody knows what really is right. Uh, companies don't know what standards to uphold in their hiring practices or in their firing practices. In the end, if you don't um, adhere to the Ten Commandments, to the standards of the Scriptures, uh, you're going to wind up having a willy-nilly philosophy that's all over the map. G.K. Chesterton said it very well when he said that if a man will not uh, obey the Ten Commandments, he will be forced to obey the Ten Thousand Commandments. We live in a society where we've got thousands of rules and regulations pouring in upon us because we refuse to repair to that one simple straightforward standard, the standard that God has given us in his law. When the founding fathers drew on the biblical standard for, for absolutism in law, they, they made statements like um, that, that every one of us has, has a God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In, in humanist societies, like, say, Nazi Germany, uh, where, where that standard is removed, uh, there's no place to draw the line between what is and what is not human, what is and what is not an appropriate action for a government to take, what is and what is not proper retribution. You wind up with concentration camps, medical experiments, um, uh, the destruction and genocide of whole people groups. Ultimately, without absolutes, uh, we are left at the mercy of the strong, the powerful, and the perverse. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. declared that Jesus Christ was very God of very God and very man of very man, truly man and truly God, two natures without confusion but in perfect union. Now what this did was to block the possibility of any other incarnation of God. The most common such incarnation was in the state. The state either through its office or through its ruler or through a particular line was held to be divine, God walking on earth. So that the prime minister, like Joseph in Egypt, was a high priest 
That's why he married a priest's daughter, or was told to marry her. <laughs> he could not be the prime minister and the high priest of Egypt without that office, that marriage. Well, with the Council of Chalcedon, the Council made clear there could be no confusion. Jesus Christ is a unique incarnation. Since then, we've had Hegel tell us that the state is God walking on earth. And whether you are a member of one of the Republican parties or the uh, European parties on the left or on the right, you are a Hegelian. The same is true here in this country. Republicans and Democrats, each in their own way, are Hegelian then the church has seen itself in ancient pagan terms as a continuation of the incarnation. Protestants reject that doctrine, but it's creeping into Protestantism on other grounds. The church as the body of Christ, and therefore somehow the church is God's voice on earth. But the body of Christ refers to the humanity of Christ. And the regenerate in Christ are the new humanity of the new Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. We were born in the old humanity of Adam. We are reborn in the new humanity of Jesus Christ. So that the church as the body of Christ is not divine. It represents the new humanity, the body of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, not his deity. To the Christian who doesn't understand the application of the law of God in today's culture, I would ask this question. Is homosexual behavior wrong? If the answer is yes, why is it wrong? You see, only the moral absolutes of the scriptures can make homosexual behavior wrong. And this is why some of our friends in the so-called Christian right have cornered themselves when they say, well, let's just have family values, let's have traditional values. Whose tradition? Sodom and Gomorrah's? Whose family values? John and Bill's? Um, if you do not adhere to the law of God as being the only legitimate source of right and wrong that's unchanging, that's absolute, that's transcendent, given to us by God, then ultimately you cave in on the homosexual issue. Because these are two consenting adults who say that they love each other and it's a free country and etc, etc, etc. This is why so many Christian leaders have been so tepid or downright silent in a response to the advance of the homosexual agenda, recruiting our children, propaganda in schools, homosexual special rights, and of course now homosexual marriage. If the Christian community does not return to its roots of loving the law of God, it's going to be steamrolled, not just by the homosexual movement, God only knows what's right on the heels of that. As the church has abandoned the law of God, we have also abandoned the courage, even the militancy, if you will, that is required of us. I mean, after all, scholars call this the church militant. The church triumphant is in heaven. So we as the church militant, the church in conflict, have been sitting on our hands for 40 years. And what has that gotten us? 
They legalized pornography. We did nothing. They drove prayer and the Bible out of government schools. We looked the other way. They legalized the killing of innocent children. We did nothing. They started to give homosexuals special rights. We've you know, kind of wrung our hands a little bit, but still done nothing. If we continue to do nothing, we are going to be overrun. We are going to, as Christ said, be the salt that has lost its savour, and we're going to be thrown into the street and trampled underfoot of men. What kind of America do people want to leave for their children? What horrors are down the road? Stuff that was unthinkable 30 years ago, stuff that was unthinkable today. What horrors await down the road if we don't stand and fight? There are Christians who say that we cannot deal with the cultural political issues facing us based upon the law of God. And they give a bunch of reasons. Some of them are PR reasons. It makes us look bad. It makes us look narrow. Some of them are ideological reasons. They think, well, these people don't believe the law of God, so we can't quote it to them. To all of those, I say, wait a minute, stop. The language of Scripture is the language of God. God spoke to us in His Word. And if we think that we can improve upon the law of God, if we think that we can be wittier than the law of God, that we can be more clever and get people to go along with us because just look at the data. I mean, this is all a surrender of the Christian religion to the enemies of the Christian religion. We cannot surrender the premise of there being a God who is sovereign, who is the rule maker, the lawmaker, if you will, and then expect to prevail on the field of battle. Because once you surrender the premise, as the, as the old saying goes, he who frames the question wins the debate. And if we don't believe in moral absolutes that God gave them, and we surrender that, and then we get in a debate, a cultural, political debate with people, what are we gonna, how are we going to win? They say, well, I feel this. And we say, well, we feel this. Well, it's feeling against feeling. It's who can be the most clever, who can take the best poll. Wait, stop. My feelings aren't really that relevant. God's feelings are. God's law is. The problem with picking and choosing uh, is that it, it's, um, it's not an attitude of submission, it's an attitude of what is culturally acceptable. And while I personally may, uh, you know, be revulsed possibly by certain laws or requirements uh, in the Old Testament, you know, the fact is they come from God himself, so my revulsion is just an exposure uh, possibly in any way, of, of uh, my need for a greater uh, deal of holiness. When you're reading the Old Testament, you always have to read it through the New Testament. I mean, you, you, we're not suggesting, uh, I'm not suggesting, I don't want to speak for all theonomists, you know, uh, but I'm not suggesting that you just adopt lock, stock, barrel, jot, and tittle. I mean, obviously the New Testament has made some very, excuse me, some very fundamental changes but um, uh, I think as soon as your position is, I like this, I don't like this, you know, this kind of is uh, abhorrent to a 20th century sophisticated Christian, I think that really presents some problems. I would say that, first of all, all law emanates from a holy God. Uh, every law, the Puritans taught that the, the laws of God were beams of his holiness. All laws. Um, so I would say you better be careful if you look and say that execution of, uh, you know, something other than a mass murderer uh, is reprehensible, 
you're talking about the nature of God. He didn't just arbitrarily come up with this stuff. I mean, this reflects his mind, his holiness toward these issues. And so I would say, um, no, we are the ones that are barbaric toward the injustice uh, that these crimes obviously represent. And uh, we need to rethink how we approach uh, these laws when we say, oh, well, that's just so unfair that you would penalize adultery or, you know, I mean, he just couldn't control himself or, you know, she just was having a, you know, a bad hair day or whatever. And we need to justify that. And okay, she said she's sorry and he's taken her back. And so there shouldn't be any civil penalty. And, um, and how could they do that in the Old Testament? Uh, obviously, you know, these were just a barbaric people. And, and I, again, I go back to the Puritan belief, uh, which I, I believe is, is, is scriptural. Hey, these, this is a law of God. This comes from God himself. This expresses uh, holiness. Hey, wait a minute. Are you saying that the God who came up with these laws is barbaric? Well, uh, no. You know, all right, now let's have the conversation. Which law should be applied? The idea or the notion that we can be governed by many moralities, pluralism, is, is a myth. Um, we are either in obedience to God's law and we're in opposition to God's law. Now the concern in the mechanistic sense that we're going to impose God's law through an ecclesiocracy that is ruled by the clergy or through some dictatorship as in an Islamic nation, that is a misinterpretation of biblical law. Biblical law when it regards civil polity is the ultimate decentralized government. Uh, scripture does not support dictatorships uh, in fact, it doesn't trust dictatorships. The whole uh, idea be behind God judging uh, Babylon was that man was coming together. He had all of his strength and all of his wherewithal coming together in one central location to have a global government. And God, by one stroke of the hand, decentralized their government and turned the languages one against the other and formed nation states from that one expression of a global uh, uh, kind of expression. Well, that's the paradigm of the liberal. You see, liberals and humanists think in terms of statism. They must have the state to coerce and to foist their ideas upon the people. They don't have another way of thinking. The state is Messiah for them. So when they look upon us and they see our ideas or our notions and we are fighting uh, for uh, biblical law being applied to all of life, they can't think in any other term. They think, well, it's going to be a top-down, theocratic, or oligarchic, or monarchic system. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not revolution or political dictatorships that we place our faith in. Rather, it's in the power of conversion. And we are converting, literally, millions to the idea that God's law is supreme. We see these revolutionary trends in homeschooling. We see it in ecclesiastical reform. We are seeing it in the civil realm as we elect expressly and explicitly Christian politicians, not simply neoconservatives, but Christians who acknowledge God's law as supreme. And as we see this one family at a time, one church at a time, one community at a time, one state at a time, America will be converted and it will be through conversion, not revolution, that we see this great reordering and restructuring and re-anchoring of our society to God's law. Now granted, 
There will always be those who are autonomous rebels, who trample underfoot the Son of God, who count the blood of the covenant to be unholy. And they will always seek to overthrow God's rule. In the family, we see it with divorce, we see it with abortion, uh, we see it in the church with ecclesiastical anarchists, those who would not be governed by sound doctrine, and we see it in civil states. Um, but, that being the case, uh, only if they resort to violent means to overthrow godly order, would they be suppressed. But they would be suppressed not by clergymen. They would be suppressed by a decentralized federal republic. To pastors, I speak as a pastor. And I want pastors to hear me. Two things are needed in this hour. Number one, sound orthodoxy is needed. For as one noted theologian has spoken very aptly recently, you can't beat something with nothing. If we don't return to a reformed faith, that is to say the orthodox, historic reformed faith, we will not have the tools ethically to take dominion in the earth in time and history as Christ Jesus has commanded us to do. There is no arguing that point. But there is something else that is needed in this hour, and I think it is equally important, and that is pastors in this hour need courage. There's a great famine of courage in this hour. It will take courage to embrace the historic Reformed Orthodox Christian faith. I know this personally. But it will also take courage once we've embraced that faith to apply that faith then in time and history, locally, in our neighborhoods, where we live and where we breathe and where we have our being. When God begins to judge a nation, the first thing, the very first thing that he does is to give his own people cowardly clergy. I am very fearful today that America right now is being sanctioned, judged, you might say, with cowardly clergy. They are all around us. You look at the clergy today and what do you see? You see politically correct and religiously correct men of the cloth who are afraid to speak the truth for Christ. What is it costing us? Well, so far there's over 40 million dead babies. Militant homosexuality, militant feminism, militant humanism is running amok in our culture. We have two states now with right to die laws and we have the most wicked, vile, perverted president in our history. There is no end in sight. Now I'm a pastor. I know about fear. I know about loneliness. I know about the loss of reputation. But I am convinced that if we don't see a revival in courage in this nation, if we don't see some men begin to stand up in courage, conviction, and Christian principle, and stand faithfully in a world of cowardice and compromise, then we are going to deserve everything that's coming our way, we and our children. The great Russian prophet Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote from the Gulag, many, many prophetic things about his own people and about the future of America. And when asked what went wrong in Russia that God would visit upon them for 70 years the brutality of communism, he only had one thing to say, and here's what he said. He said, Russia forgot God. America has forgotten her God. She's forgotten her God because her shepherds have forgotten her God. 
This is not rocket science. When the pastors are walking in the fear of God and yet the comfort of the Holy Ghost, when the pastors are teaching sound orthodoxy, when they are wedding that with courage to the things that they must do, there is victory, there is peace, and there is hope. If we don't see a raising up of the black regiment in this hour, if we don't see a Parsons revolution, well then, I would say America is about to enter a long and a dark period. For as the pastors go, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the nation. To sum up the question of legislative morality, every law is an attempt to legislate someone's morality. The civil law must have some standard, either its human autonomy, what man sees is right in his own eyes, or its biblical law, what God declares to be right in his word. There is no neutral ground, no middle way. As Christians, we have only one choice, the choice that leads to eternal life, found in his law word.